welcome to the Zero Room. This is The Invasion. Attacked on the dark side of the moon, the Doctor and his companions escape only to find themselves facing an alien invasion. What is Tobias Vaughan hiding inside the offices of International Electromatics? Why is he so eager to perfect the Cerebration Mentor? And what will Zoe and Isabel find massing in London sewers? All this and more will be revealed in the Zero Room. Invasion. So, the Doctor, Jamie and Zoe arrive in England four years after they met Yetis in the underground. Their arrival is not without incident, of course. They're shot at from the dark side of the moon. As their escape has damaged the circuits on board the TARDIS, they set out for London to find their friend, Professor Travers. Only to find Isabel, a forward-thinking young photographer whose uncle, Professor Watkins, has been missing for a week. Their search for Professor Watkins leads them to the malevolent megalomaniac Vaughan factory and his henchman Packer. Vaughan is planning an invasion with a mysterious ally who turn out to be the Cybermen. So the invasion, there is so much to say about this adventure. It's the last of the black and white cyber adventures and after three years in which we had five Cybermen stories, this was going to be the last cyber story for a full seven years. We have some new look Cybermen. We have a full on Earth invasion story, which is actually quite rare in the annals of Doctor Who. It's also a sequel to Web of Fear. It's the first unit story, and there are some really serious riddles bound up with this story. So I'm going to start with Dominic. What did you enjoy about Invasion? So Invasion, I mean, uh, let's just say it's a very iconic story in its own right because when people think of the invasion generally they have that iconography of the cybermen coming down from saint paul's Mm. and that is a very iconic image in itself um i always really enjoyed the invasion i mean it was think after tomb and was it the moon base i'm trying to think back to my childhood here when i watched it for the first time um but it was definitely one of the first cybermen stories that i ah Third, after Earthshock and Tomb of the Cybermen. But yeah, I, I really do enjoy this one. I mean, yeah, I, I find it kind of startling as it's more focused on the Earth side of things and it's one of the few times that the Cybermen and humans are working together of sorts. But they're also strangely quiet in this particular episode as well, mm. which is very dynamic of them. Because usually the Cybermen in previous stories are talking incessantly. Mm. But this time, you'd be hard-pressed to find a scene where a Cyberman is actually speaking. And I think that's a unique take because it makes them a bit more of a silent destroyer. Mm. Yeah, I completely agree. I really like the story where the Cybermen are almost mute. Because mm. I think you're right. I think there's almost no dialogue. There's no place where there's a kind of call and response. Whereas in something like Tenth Planet, they have a lot to say. So how about yourself, Jamie? What did you like about this episode? It does go on a bit. That's not something you like about the episode, Jamie. <laughs> what do I like about it? It's become known as the blueprint for the Pertwee era for good reasons. I mean, Derek Sherwin uh, sort of crafted the story, uh, was also heavily involved, bringing together all these strands like Unit, Brig, very sort of Earth-based story. Uh, and of course, he would then try the same trick again in Spearhead from Space, which is the first Pertwee story. It's very stylishly done. Well, I think it actually, you know, holds up surprisingly well i think douglas campfield did a great job as the director um of course he also did web of fear as well and would go on to do some other great stories in the 70s um so it has an awful lot of panache and a lot going for it i love the soundtrack as well oh yeah we should but definitely talk about that in a bit 
it's not often you get to say that with a straight face, but it's a corking Doctor Who soundtrack. So Emma, Jamie says this is stylish. Dom says it's iconic. Would you agree? Is this an iconic story? It is, yeah. It's beautifully done. But I was really struck by Vaughan. He is such a malevolent character. How, in your view, does Vaughan pull off that malevolence? How does he project that? It's his charm, and you know that it's all sort of skin deep, but Jamie's really sucked in by that at the beginning. He really thinks that he's probably a nice person. That makes malevolence even more significant because he's convinced people that he's a, a good person. And then his his sort of throwaway attitude to human life. Mm. He's certainly the nastiest character we've discussed, I would say, in this podcast. But of course, he's not completely human. His body is is mechanical, isn't it? He's already yeah. been converted, I suppose, to some extent. Yeah, how about you, Dom? What do you make of the antagonist in this episode? He is a charismatic sociopath, mm. is what I would say. Mm. He is... He's really a force of darkness. I mean, um, as well as associations with, I uh, believe, the cyber planner as well. Mm-hmm. Um, he is very, don't like him. He's just a nasty piece of work. He's probably one of the nastiest pieces of work in who since oh, Salamander. Remind us, where, do we, where would we come across him? Is he... Oh, in Enemy of the World, yeah. You see, uh, I've never uh, seen that. I, I went to see um, that in London at a cinema and I, I have to say I fell asleep in it. It just didn't <laughs> grab me as a, you know, as, a, as a thing. But Jamie, what do you make of Vaughn as a villain? I loved him. I think it's a real Bond villain performance. Mm. Um, Kevin Stoney, of course, who also played Mavic Chen in the Dalek Master Plan. I think Tobias Vaughn is one of the most sort of deliciously naughty villains that the series has actually ever had in 60 years. It's almost a shame that he had to meet his maker at the end because I would pay good money to watch a series with him in it and especially him and his relationship with Packer. Mm. Packer was just laughably inept. And when you've got someone as evil as Tobias Vaughn, someone who has such little respect for human life, why on earth wouldn't he have liquidated Packer like five years ago or something? But yeah, Vaughn, I completely love him. One of the things I love about Vaughn is that he has his own theme music. When you enter his office, you get this little bit of light jazz piano playing. And I I like the juxtaposition of his charm and this light piano music on the one hand with his kind of malevolent heart on the other hand. I also like the fact that he's somebody who the Doctor can talk to and the Doctor can reason with. I I wasn't too keen on the kind of the teaming up Vaughan and the Doctor at the end. But, I mean, they had to, he had to do a speech, didn't he? Vaughan had to do a speech to sort of justify the fact that it wasn't because he wanted to team up with the Doctor, it was because he hated the Cybermen and he had to get his revenge. And he had to make that whole speech to just clarify mm. <laughs> that he wasn't being I'm right. not doing this for you. <laughs> I guess it's about establishing his motivation, isn't it? He has to be a plausible character and therefore, you know, short of having a conversion experience mm. and like seeing the cross or something. Yeah, he's not gonna he's not gonna turn good over you know good overnight. Perhaps it's done in a heavy-handed way. I don't know, but I kind of liked that. The thing I wanted to raise about Vaughan is that Vaughan is interesting to me because he is the head of a corporation. So he's the head of what is it called, international electromatics or whatever. So he's not like a dictator of a state, and he's not an alien. He's Steve Jobs, or he's you know the guy who runs Tesla, whoever he is. Or- Elon Musk. Elon, he's Elon Musk. He's Jeff Bezos. Exactly. He's one of these guys. And I think it's really interesting that in 1968, we're already getting people being concerned about the impact of tech companies. And the other thing that I think is interesting about him is he's, it's consumer electronics, which are the thing which are going to bring down the human race. And again, that's very, I think, very of its moment in 1968. I mean, in terms of sci-fi as well at that time, that was starting to become a real rise up in uh, concepts. Um, if you look at things like a, a Space Odyssey, you've got HAL 
3,000? Was it 5,000? 9,000. 9,000. There we go. I was wrong either way. <laughs> um, but you got that sort of technology showing the dangers of technology and how it can come and kill us. But yeah, it is certainly, that was a rising trope. And of course, you had things like the Twilight Zone, which showed the dangers of tech on a nearly regular mm. basis. So it was certainly um, one of the rising parts of uh, dystopian fiction. Mm. Oh no, absolutely. I loved the answer machine, the scene <laughs> in the reception of, the, of their building. The machine that just gives automated responses and until you know the doctor just loses his patience with it. And I just thought, my goodness, if, so, if someone actually you know stepped into a time machine and experienced automated response phone calls in the 21st century yeah it is yeah well absolutely because there's a kind of criticism of this kind of tech power and these tech companies on various different levels there which are all of which i think are just very very cool and i think part of the iconography of it is that it is the although it's set in let's say 1974 or whatever it is completely embedded in the iconography of the 1960s Jamie, what did you make of Zoe in the story? Um, she, she did a great job blowing up a computer. There's a slightly cringeworthy bit at the end where she sort of makes these calculations to save the world and doesn't one of the soldiers say, you know, you're, you're quite bright for a girl or something like <laughs> Much that. Much prettier than a computer, I think is the line. Which is it's fair enough. Uh, hard to argue with that point, of course, factually. It's very well written. I know you hate Packer with a passion, but when you're writing these things, having a number two to the villain is absolutely brilliant because the villain can then explain the plot. When you look later, you see that Robert Holmes uses this again and again and again when he's writing. If you look at Jago and Lightfoot in Talons of Wen Chiang, or even Seeds of Doom. I can't remember what the villain's called, but the number two is Scorby, isn't it? He wrote Caves of Androzani as well, mm, didn't he? Indeed, yeah. Because I can imagine the uh, the president of Androzani Major, I believe, explaining to his secretary about the yeah. plan. It's a classic way of explaining the plot without someone literally just talking to themselves, going mad. Although, of course, yeah. he does that <laughs> in Caves of Androzani as well. True. Uh, of course. Uh, yeah, no, true. I like that. I like that in Caves of Androzani, the way he kind of breaks the fourth wall and has a conversation with a kind of disembodied the spineless audience. spineless cretins. I, I appreciate your defence of Packer. Emma, what did you make of Zoe in this story? I love her. She, she really comes into her own and her partnership with Isabel, brilliant. There's, uh, there's a real sort of, there's a real rise of feminism, I think, in this episode. And I think having Isabel alongside her sort of empowers her significantly. There's a, there's a couple of bits where I feel it's sort of not ideal. They sort of go off into the, uh, into the sewers on their own and, and it becomes clear that, yeah, they shouldn't have done that. They really shouldn't. And the men are proved correct. That I wasn't too keen on, but the rest Ooh, of it... I'm... The, the innovative use of the camera, the mathemat mathematical, yes, it might have been a bit cringy, Jamie, but she does save the day. Well, exactly. She really does save the day, doesn't it? It's one of those rare occasions in Doctor Who where it is the companion rather than the Doctor himself who saves the day. I mean, my reading of this, and I'd be interested to know what you make of this, Don, but my reading of the relationship is that it's very much Jamie and the Doctor have a very close relationship and Zoe is kind of like the, the satellite that orbits that central relationship. What, what's your reading of the relationships within the TARDIS at this stage? The thing is, it's very similar to the dynamic that was with the Doctor, Jamie and Victoria. Mm. I mean, Victoria was 
perhaps a little bit less on the uh, the competency scale, Zoe, shall we say. Mm. Um, but the uh, emotional dynamic is quite the same. You have Jamie and the Doctor, they're the, the buddy bus, the brothers. But you have the, the woman on the outside who's just a bit more like, Oh, yeah. Include me, um, mm. but yeah, I, I do think that Zoe in this story was great, and she was capable, and that is a very good uh, way of putting it. I'd say um, it gave me vibes of like, say, Uhura in Star mm. Trek: The Original Series, having being able to use that sort of uh, competency with what they're good at to actually save the day, and the fact that the writers in the 1960s actually used that and utilized that and made it like a yes woman can save the day story was actually really good because that was hardly done in those mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. The other thing I liked about Zoe is that I thought in a lot of Doctor Who stories that I don't like, there are attempts made in the script to give the companions something to do or to excuse their absence. Whereas mm -hmm. I thought when Zoe was out of the picture in episode three or whatever it was, I thought although she was notable by her absence, I thought the plot made sense. They had given Zoe a good reason to not be there and they also given Zoe a very good reason to appear right at the beginning of the next episode. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of more about Zoe's absence than her presence. Obviously, we meet Zoe for the first time in Wheel of Space, um, which is the one Cyberman story that we haven't looked at in detail. But I wanted to bring it in just momentarily, because again, in the Wheel of Space, we have new look Cybermen. We have mm -hmm. various things that set up invasion in the sense we have this kind of disembodied cyber planner figure. Again, in Wheel of Space, they're, they're um, using mind control again. And going back to what Don was saying about 2001, the wheel in space is very much this 1968 vision of what space stations are going to look like, the big spinning wheels. So has anyone seen wheel in space? What did you make of it as, a, as part of this canon of early Cyberman stories? I've seen the two surviving episodes uh, and I've tried to listen to the rest of them, the uh, audio soundtracks, and I've seen the 10 minute animation, which was bundled in with the Macro Terror earlier this year as well. It's always struck me as a, a bit of a sort of greatest hits package, Wheel in Space. It's never been the most engaging story ever. I, I may feel differently if I actually saw the whole thing. Mm. I have to say, I'm itching for it to be reconstructed, and I hear on the grapevine it's going to be reconstructed and released next year. So let's hope there's some kind of vaccine and we can all get ourselves down to the BFI and watch it in glorious 2D. I have to say, I liked Wheel in Space. There are lots of things I like about it. Particularly, again, it's got that beautiful 60s iconography. I love the way the Cybermen emerge from those white spheres. I like the fact that the Cybermen have had gone through a redesign. They're kind of looking slicker. Their chest units have been turned upside down so that you can see the Cyberman's face and you can see the light going on on their chest units simultaneously in a close-up. Um, I like the new helmets. I like the teardrop eye shape, which became really influential. I like the use of mind control. And to be honest, what happened in the 70s and 80s? When, where did mind control go? That was a good cyber bit of technology. And obviously I love the introduction of Zoe and I do like Zoe as a character. So Anne Travers was one of the characters that they were thinking about bringing back in Invasion. Because obviously Invasion is a sequel to Web of Fear. Is that too much science going on with the Doctor, with Anne Travers, with Zoe? Is that too much science? Or could the story have handled that, do you reckon? I don't think they would have gone for it, purely on the basis, because, I mean, they got rid of Liz Shaw in the season seven because they felt the show was getting too, like, 
scientific and they needed more they need joe grant as more of an audience surrogate hmm. um so i don't think they would have had the courage to bring her back for uh invasion they just uh would have thought it would be too much and uh hmm. it was an experiment that they just didn't they tried for season seven didn't have the confidence in and bailed which i think is a shame as much as hmm. i love joe grant absolutely he doesn't love joe grant yeah i guess doctor who is kind of unlike a show like star trek right, which is kind of quite hard sci-fi doctor who's always had a bigger fantasy element so i guess they've always tried to dial the science back a little bit with the possible exception of tom baker's last season when thingy bob was the script editor emma do you think the story could bear an additional scientist as a character no okay i don't i think there would have been too much overlap between Anne travis and zoe it's a shame not to reintroduce Anne, to have a bit of continuity there, but I, I really like that character of Isabel. She represents that kind of new way of thinking that, you know, in the 60s, and just, I, I, quite, I quite like her, her character there. Absolutely, and yeah, she brings a kind of different dynamic to it. Let's talk about music, I really think we should. Um, Jamie, you mentioned that this music is kind of iconic. Um, it's like some of the best incidental music that we've had I think, in Doctor Who. What did you like about the music, Jamie? It was quite unusual because I don't think Don Harper actually did any other soundtracks for Doctor Who. That's correct, he did not. Which is a, a real shame, but it, it does go very sort of seamlessly with that. I mean, if you've watched like the late 60s spy thrillers like Ipcrest File, mm. Kit Carter, um, Austin Powers. That, Austin Powers? <laughs> Just testing if you're still awake, Robin. If, if you watch those sort of very sort of gritty sort of late 60s, early 70s drums, also the Sweeney as well, there's very atmospheric and moody sort of music underneath it all, really sort of underpinning the threat. You know, often when you go and watch a film or you watch TV these days, there's a very sort of bombastic soundtrack sort of really ramping up the tension. But in the, in the case of Don Harper's soundtrack, it, it very much underpins it and underplays it, which actually makes it even more spooky and even more tense. What did you make of the music, Dom? Yeah, I thought it was the same, to be honest. I was just, um, I mean, it's very different to usual Dudley Simpson soundtrack, mm. um, who I believe was still, it was still doing the majority of the stories, wasn't mm. it, back in the chart, before he took over basically full time in the Pertree era through to uh, season 17. But yeah, as was mentioned before, the jazz, a real mixture. It was a real mixture of uh, tones, and uh, I just think it's, a pretty decent soundtrack would i say it's one of my favorite classic soundtracks i don't know about that i generally prefer the later stuff when it became more synthesized but for the 60s which didn't have that much of a focus on the soundtrack i thought it was uh, nicely dynamic oh yeah no i completely agree with that i love this i mean i think if you compare the soundtrack to the wheel in space for example with the soundtrack to invasion you've got the kind of two ends of the spectrum that Doctor Who's working on in the 60s because the Wheel of Space is all synthesizers all the mm. time and they're using all the crazy production techniques. It's all very electronic. Whereas when you come to Don Harper in um, Invasion, you've got a completely different palette. You've got the cymbal on, um, also used as Jamie pointed out in the Crest file. Got loads of beautiful kind of acoustic um, percussion, woodwind. And Douglas Canfield, I believe, approached Don Harper himself. He didn't want to work with um, the regular composer. And I think the consequence of that is that we do have a fantastic soundtrack. The other thing I love about the soundtrack is that Don Harper is thinking about creating music which could be soundtrack or it could be just part of the atmosphere. I mean, when you walk into Vaughan's office, is that soundtrack music or is that the music that Vaughan has in his office? You know, it's anybody's guess. So I like the kind of the way he's playing with the things we're hearing and creating what, yeah, I would agree with Jamie 
on this. It's a really great soundtrack. Emma, did you enjoy the soundtrack? I did very much, yes. And I agree with a lot of what's said, but I did not like the jaunty music that came along with Unit. Oh, no. That was dreadful, yeah. Just, I'm glad that that did not make it into subsequent Unit stories. It was just kind of, it was too much of a contrast to everything else, that all the mm. other sounds that, that was happening, the malevolent kind of atmosphere built up around, you know, Vaughan, and then this kind of do-do-do-do, you know, no, ridiculous. Yeah. I guess the one downside of having a new composer is that we didn't get to hear the Cyberman theme. Mm. Goodness me. Oh, our last opportunity to hear it in black and white, we didn't get that. Okay, am I right in saying this is the first unit story? Because I think there's an explanation as well. I think I'm pretty sure he explains to them that after the, the situation with the Yetis, they didn't want to have a repeat. And mm. so they set up this international mm. army, which is answerable to the Minister of Defence. That's nice to know. I'm glad to hear that there's a, like a chain of command, constitutional um, norms are being respected, etc. Yeah, but sadly he's answerable to Vaughan. <laughs> Dom, what did you make of the introduction of unit? I think there is a reasonable choice because clearly I remember very little of the rubber fear. Um, but <laughs> oh, sorry, I think that I think that must be the cyber controller or something telling me that. Oh my goodness, this is a very unfocused discussion. This is exactly why we need cyber control of the earth. Sorry, Dom, you were saying talk about Eunuch. Yeah, it was very reminiscent of their later stories in the Pertwee era. Mm -hmm. Now that essentially the Earth Defense Force against aliens, I really think that Unit were a great invention for the show. And once again, this just kind of proved it because it brings a lot of good supporting characters with it, especially mm. the, the the brig. Who's the brig's number two in this one? Captain Turner. I, I really quite liked Captain Turner. I'm sad that he didn't make it into subsequent episodes. He was such a big part of the unit team. I think he might have had more screen time than Nicholas Courtney. I don't know. Jamie, what did you make of unit? I thought it was very well introduced. I mean, back then, if you look at the ITC dramas that were on the other side on ITV, you had all manner of sort of international quasi-military organisations like Department S, Shadow, UFO. No self-respecting sci-fi show would be without a quasi-military international organisation. It was that season's must-have accessory. <laughs> and I guess we kind of need them as a counterbalance to the cyber army and also to Vaughan's army who kind of go around in their little milk float or whatever as they're driving it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've always felt that if the Doctor or indeed Zoe in this case, resorts to blowing things up with missiles, I kind of feel that's a bit of a get-out-of-jail-free card. I'd much rather the Doctor kind of figured something out. I've never liked Unit for that reason. It's all too mm. easy. Mm. Nonetheless, you know, for seven and a half episodes, everything is rattling along beautifully. And the helicopter is very useful, if not, if not somewhat conspicuous. And oh my goodness, what about episode two? I would so love to see the footage of the rope ladder and the, that's just crazy stuff is i mean that's that's proper jeopardy that's incredible i'd love to have seen that so there are a number of riddles that um this show kind of throws up and i want people's opinion on this the first riddle kind of concerns cyber chronology so the chronology as i understand it is 10th planet happened in 1986 wheel in space happened in about 2030 Moonbase happens in 2070. Tomb of the Cybermen takes place in the 25th century AD. And Invasion happens in 1974, roughly. If Invasion happens in 1974, it means that in terms of our fictional black and white chronology, this is the first time, as far as we've seen on screen, that the Doctor has met the Cybermen. And yet, the Cybermen appear to have seen him before. 
So what do we think of this? Well, the thing is, I like to think about it in the way that uh, the Cybermen have multiple established mm -hmm. origins, and that was confirmed through the mm -hmm. Doctor Falls, where we have spare parts mm -hmm. coexist with mm -hmm. World Enough and Time as Cybermen origin stories, which can, again, coexist with Rise mm -hmm. of the Cybermen as well, or even and the Tenth Planet. It all, it all works mm -hmm. into each other. Um, so... This, I, I'm going to go on a stretch and say the, the Cybermen seen in the invasion aren't necessarily the same um, brand of Cybermen that were seen in like Tomb of the Cybermen or the Moonbase. But I would say that they are like an evolution of the Cybermen that the Doctor may have come across later mm. in life in a, uh, in a later incarnation, but they met him at an earlier point mm. in their own timeline. So mm. I think it, it, it would fit in through that method because I believe this is not the earliest set. Is this the earliest set Cyberman story? I'm not entirely sure. It's the earliest of all the black and white ones in terms of its fictional chronology. I yeah. don't know about other ones. It's the earliest black and white. Revenge, that's in the future. Earthshock set in the future. Attack set in the future. Yeah, it's the future. Silver Nemesis, when was that set? I think that's set in the 80s, isn't it, again? This is in the 80s. Yeah, there's also the Jodie Whittaker one when the Cyberman rocks up um, at the time of Percy and Mary mm. Shelley. Oh yes, thank yes, you. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So again, all Cybermen have got that hive mind with the with the mm. Siberiad, the Cyberplanner, mm. and they would all be aware, kind of like the Borg. They have their own uh, consciousness. So mm. all information that a Cyberman harnesses, whether that be meeting the Doctor for the first time, that would all go to every Cyberman. Mm. So it doesn't really matter what order they meet each other in, mm, but one way or another, Cyberman gonna know who he or she is. Jamie, do you what? What do you think about the cyber chronology? Is it is it important? Is it significant? Is this just part of the rich tapestry of Doctor Who? I couldn't care less about the cyber chronology. Oh. I mean, for goodness <laughs> sake! You know, we all have odd relatives that we don't talk about. You know, and I think that's just a good way of describing the various permutations of cyber people. I like the implied thing that Attack of the Cybermen features Cybermen still wandering around London sewers from the invasion. I really like Dom's point about the idea that there are multiple invasion stories. And one of the things that always struck me is one of the big differences between Doctor Who on the one hand and Star Trek on the other hand, is that in Star Trek, they've really tried hard to make everything kind of fit. It doesn't quite work, but they've tried hard to do it. So Doctor Who, they just don't care. Doctor Who is about telling this story and they'll work out in retrospect how this story fits with everything else. Another riddle is the riddle of Planet 14, okay, because they've seen the Doctor before on Planet 14, they say. Anyone got any thoughts on Planet 14? It's next to Planet 13. <laughs> if only life is that simple, Jamie. I'm going to say there's probably some potential for it to be harvested into a comic or a <laughs> novel or something. Bound to be. Just wrap it up that way. Could they be referring to the tomb of the Cyberman planet? And given Dom's theory that you have this kind of universal Cyberman concept that they're... Telos. Yeah, that's the one. There we go. I, it strikes me it could be Telos. It could be Mondas. Tormelinos. The problem with it being Telos is it's like 500 years in the future. The problem with it being Monbass is it's like, I don't know, 10 years in the future. But either way, you have to allow information to travel backwards in time. Call me a stickler for my laws of physics, yeah. but it's, that's the problem. But I quite, I quite liked um, Dom's idea of hive mind, you see. Mm. 
What I really like about Planet 14 is it's just thrown in with no explanation whatsoever and then it's forgotten about. I love the fact it just creates this layer of mystery because Vaughan clearly knows what they're talking about and the cyber planner clearly knows what's going on, but we don't know and we're never allowed in. And I love that about it. I think, that, I think one of the things I love about Doctor is there is this, there are ongoing mysteries that we will never get to the bottom of. And that's one of the things that makes the show so great. Does anyone know anything about why there were no Cybermen for seven years? They went on holiday. Jamie had a week off. He was still part of the story. Going on holiday doesn't get him out of this. I'm glad Jamie had a week off. He was very irritating in that. Very, like, not the sharpest tool in the box. I mean, I guess... I mean, in terms of the Cybermen, I guess they wanted to give them a little bit of a break because they did a similar thing with the Daleks. Uh, we didn't get the Daleks mm. on screen from uh, Evil the Daleks in 1967, was it? Uh, mm -hmm. To... Day of the Daleks, which would be in 1973. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a big gap. Very big gap. And the Cybermen got the same treatment. I feel it was just a bit like we... Because the Daleks were very used in the Hartnell era. Mm. So I think they just, with the two big baddies of Doctor Who, they just reached the point where they're like, okay, we've probably gone as far as we can go with these villains for now. Let's try mm. something new. And mm. so they just spent their time uh, focusing on uh, newer villains like the uh, Ice Warriors and then the Silurians and the Sea Devils. Mm. And the Master. The Master, of course, yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sad that Pertwee never properly met the Cybermen, or at least not during his tenure as the Doctor. Mm. Um, I would have loved to see how a, how a Pertwee Cybermen thing would go. I'm fairly sure that he's getting a big finish with Tim Trellor and doing a Cyberman story. I feel, like that right? I feel like that might be a thing. Yeah, it is a thing. Uh, in the uh, Third Doctor Adventures, mm -hmm. they actually do give the Third Doctor a Cyberman story. Is it any good, does anyone know? Uh, it's not bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> High praise indeed. Say, Jamie, from yeah. vested interest <laughs> as a Third Doctor writer, FYI. I mean, I've got a lot of time, actually, for those recreations uh, with the, the new actor playing the third Doctor. I think he does a very good job. Of course, they got mm. John Coulshaw as the brig mm. now as well. Well, I'm glad to hear that posthumously it probably gets to meet the Cybermen. Spin-offs. Final question. Isabel and Captain Turner, what do they do next? I love them. I'd like to see them on Love Island. That'd be great. Jamie, spin-offs. Oh, Packer and Tobias Vaughan. You know, let, let's have a series with those guys. How did they get together? Pretty cool series. Oh, my Lord. Indeed. <laughs> Vaughan says at one point, I've been working with the Cybermen for five years. <laughs> That's five years worth of material right there. We could explore the mystery of Planet 14. Oh. I'd like to see that. It, easily. If we followed the New Who format, then it would it would go into a unit spin-off easily. Because um, that would just be the way to go in terms of like how Tortured was handled. You introduce that and then you see what they're capable mm. of. And then you get a whole series later. So I'd say probably a, a unit spin-off, personally. Excellent. A unit spin-off. Sounds good to me. So in terms of spin-offs, apparently there was talk in the Doctor Who production office of a Cyberman Dalek crossover, either in the late 60s or in the early 70s. And Terry Nation was involved, but obviously it came to nothing. And I think one of the reasons it came to nothing is that dear old Kit Peddler and um, his long-term writing partner were busy doing Doomwatch and busy mm. writing books in the early 70s, so it never happened. But apparently in the Doctor Who office, there was some talk about bringing the Doctor's two big enemies together for one kind of clash of the Titans. Well that's it, we were the Zero Room, those were our thoughts, and I hope it's not immodest if I say very profound thoughts on the invasion. We're going to be back next time when we're talking about Seeds of Death.
It's the first appearance of Benton. Benton. Right. <laughs> That's really not worth talking about. If you'll forgive me. Who cares about that? <laughs>